We're in a series called You Asked For It, uh, back on Easter weekend. Uh, we surveyed the almost 2,000 people we had in our services and asked them, what do you want us to preach on? And one of the things that you asked for was a sermon on how does the world end? And frankly, that's, that's a very good question. And the disciples asked Jesus that question in Matthew 24. Uh, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, they wanted to know when will it happen and what are the warning signs that lead up to it? Because if the end of the world is coming, they wanted a heads up. And so Matthew 24, the whole chapter, 51 verses, Jesus just lays out uh, what's going to happen uh, at the end of the world. He gives us the what and he gives us the warning signs. What he doesn't give us is when. In fact, he says in uh, verse 36, he says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if you ask me if I think we're living in the last times, we're living in the end days, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Because if Jesus doesn't know, who am I to pretend that I know? Okay? Now, he does give us some warning signs. And for me, one of the most crucial signs that the end could be near is found in the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24, 14. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world, to all nations. And the word there for nations in the Greek is the word ethnos, which does not describe geographic boundaries of a country, but instead it describes ethnicities, or we say people groups. And there are more people groups than there are countries. The United Nations lists about 192 countries on the planet. But, you know, for instance, in the country of India, there are thousands of people groups. Uh, in, in Africa, there are thousands of people groups. In China, thousands of people groups. In a tiny little country of Nepal, there are hundreds of distinct people groups. And, and this, this people group terminology is the same term that was used in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. What he's saying is, is we're to reach all nations, all people groups with the gospel, and then the end will come. And I think that that's one of the reasons why only the Father knows when this is going to happen. Because it's not a date that has been set, it's a task that is supposed to be completed. And the Father is the one who determines when the task has been completed. But uh, amazingly, we are the first generation in history that is about to take the gospel to every people group in the world. Over the centuries, the church has done a great job of taking the gospel to the larger nations and to the larger people groups. We, we reached most of the larger people groups uh, by the 20th century. But there are lots and lots of smaller people groups. People groups that don't have hundreds of thousands of people in them. Groups that have hundreds of people in them. Small people groups in really remote regions of the earth, difficult places to get to, who have no believer no Bible in their language, no church. No believer, no Bible, no body of Christ. They are not engaged with the gospel. Now, since the year 2000, there has been a shift in mission efforts. 
uh, uh, there's been a concentrated effort on the part of, of the church to take the gospel to these unengaged people groups. And in the year 2000, we determined that there were 3,000 unengaged people groups. It's now down to 1,061. So our generation is within striking distance of taking the gospel to every one of those uh, unengaged people groups. And, and look what Peter says about the end times. This is what he tells us about the, the leading up to these events that are going to happen. In 2 Peter 3, he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Scoffers who say, I'm not going to let the Bible tell me how to live. I'm going to follow what, uh, what, what I want to do. I'm going to fulfill my desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. You Christians, you've been talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. It ain't going to happen. Get over it. Give it up. That's what the scoffers say. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You don't know what you're talking about. And we hear that today. And what's ironic about it is, is that's a sign that the end times are coming. Okay? Peter goes on. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And that's referring to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, where there came a day when God said, let there be. And God put into, into place the creation process and he created the universe, the heavens, the earth, and everything that's on it. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And that refers to Noah and the ark and the flood. You know, God picked another day where he looked down at mankind, and the Bible says that, that the thoughts and intents of their heart were only evil all the time. And God looked down and realized, these people have gotten so out of control, I've got to wipe them off the face of the earth. And God sent a flood that wiped off everybody and everything except for Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark. Peter says, by the same word, again, God's going to pick a day, a day that only he knows. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so God, after the flood, God said he would never destroy the earth with, with water again. That's what the whole rainbow thing is about. Uh, so this destruction is going to come by fire. Uh, Peter says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now Peter could be uh, making the point that God is eternal. God doesn't measure time like we do. That's one interpretation of that verse. But Jewish scholars look at this New Testament verse, and they don't see it that way. They believe this verse is referring to what they call a seven-day earth. If a day equals a thousand years, there were seven days in creation, that means the earth is going to last for 7,000 years. And they count 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, 2,000 years from Christ to the present. That would mean we've got another thousand years to go before the end of the world. Well, that thousand years corresponds to the millennium. A, a thousand years that appears in the book of Revelation after the return of Jesus Christ. 
So if that 1,000 years appears after, then we're at the 6,000-year mark, and frankly, we're at the doorstep of Christ's return. Now, is that interpretation true? I don't know, but I hope so, okay? Because I'm anxiously looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I do know. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. These scoffers that say, ah, it's taking too long, it's not going to happen. Peter says, no, he's not slow. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here's how I picture this verse in my mind. I see God the Father sitting on his throne in heaven, Jesus Christ sitting on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And God looks down on earth and he sees all these evil, wicked things that are going on and he turns to his son and he says, go get the church and get them out of there. Because it's time. And Jesus is ready. Because he's the bridegroom and the church is his bride and this is his wedding day. And so he's ready. So he gets up, he's about ready to get on his white horse to come get us, and God goes, hey, son, son, wait, 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 wait. I see some more people that I think we can reach. So let's just wait. And Jesus comes over and sits down. But, but God is not eager. He's not in a hurry to judge the earth. He's not in a hurry to judge people. God is patient, longing for everyone to come to repentance and come to faith in Christ. Then Peter, remembering that Jesus told him, you know, we don't know when this is going to happen. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you don't know when a thief is coming. You know, the thief just shows up and you didn't know he was there. And then he describes how the world will end. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. You know, God is going to burn everything up down to the atomic element level and start all over again. So that's how the world ends. Now, here's what what we need to understand about what leads up to that point. Because if if that's where we're living, then we need to to know how to live. So uh, first of all, we need to recognize that people will be distracted with life You know, the Bible says that that when the end time comes, people are going to be pursuing their own appetites. They're going to be chasing their desires, their dreams, their plans. They're ignoring what God said to do. They're going to be doing their own thing. And I think in light of that, we need to ask ourselves, uh, how much of this world, how much of myself am I focused on versus how much of heaven and eternity am I focused on? Don't get distracted with the things of this world to the point that you aren't ready for what is surely going to happen. I mean, the the end of the world is the most certain thing in the history of the universe because God has said over and over, this is going to happen at some point. Uh, Jesus said it this way, Matthew 24, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, Noah was building this ark for decades. And the whole time he's building it, he is preaching to these people saying, listen, you need to to repent. You need to understand God's going to destroy this place with, with, with a flood. 
And, and they didn't listen to him. They just went on eating and drinking and getting married and doing whatever they wanted to do. You know, boat, what boat? Rain, what's rain? Hand me another taco. I mean, they didn't, you know, they're distracted and weren't paying attention to what was happening around them. And the Bible cautions us, don't get distracted. Another thing that's going to happen before the end times is people will forget God. Now, this is playing out in a couple of different ways on the world at this point. In Matthew 25, following Matthew 24, Jesus says there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. So there are some who are going to follow Jesus, and there are some who are not going to follow him. They're going to reject him. And so today on the earth, we see the gospel surging in places where it's never been heard before. Today, every day, 35,000 people in China are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 35,000 people a day in China where it's illegal to be a believer. If you're a believer, you can go to jail, you can be executed. 35,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus. The gospel is surging. China's on the verge of having the, the biggest concentration of Christians of any country on the planet. In a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. I mean, how amazing is that? In, in places where the gospel hasn't been heard before, the, the, the gospel is, is sweeping like a wildfire. In countries where it's been heard before, the church is declining. You look at the church in Europe, and the church in Europe is practically dead. You look at the church in America, and it's declining. So we've got two different things going on here. We've got people who've never heard of the gospel before who are responding, and in cultures where they've heard it, uh, it it's growing cold. Uh, you know, America is more polarized now than it ever has been. We used to be accepting, tolerating, and agreement with one another at this stuff. Now we're at polar opposites. And we just see in our country there is an antagonism that is increasing and building toward things of Christ and toward Christians in the church. Uh, just this week, uh, Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine uh, published an article, 21 Books You Shouldn't Waste Your Time Reading. Guess what one of the books was? It was the Bible. They said, it's inane, it's archaic, it's boring, it's repetitive, don't waste your time reading it. You know, why are people becoming more and more, not just ambivalent, but antagonistic toward the things of Christ? Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And our culture is becoming more and more wicked. You take the standard of God's word and hold it up to the standard of our culture, and it is amazing how far and how fast we have fallen. That's why you have got to guard your heart. You have got to guard your marriage. You have got to guard your kids. You have got to guard your faith. Because the culture we live in is insidious, and it is seeking to destroy you. And you, you, this is the day that you've got to make a choice. Am I going to pursue culture or am I going to pursue Christ? And you've got to take a stand. Do not be deceived about this. Because the next thing you need to know is that when the end times happen, people will not be ready. There'll be, people won't be ready. Just like in the days of Noah. They've been forewarned, but they weren't ready. Matthew 24, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Paul said, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
And so the Bible's very clear. We cannot predict when Jesus Christ is going to come. But it's also very clear about what is going to happen and what we need to do in order to prepare for it. And so we just don't know when it's going to happen. But I want to just walk you through what's going to happen to the end of the world. Because the Bible tells us. Uh, The book of Revelation, a lot of people read Revelation, they just get overwhelmed. But if you take the book of Revelation and boil it down, there are literally 10 key events that happen over a period of seven years. And so let's just look at these 10 key events and see what they are. So first is the church age. And that's in Revelation 2 and 3. And and the the church age started with the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, and it's continued up to our day, and it'll continue into uh, the end times. But Revelation 2 and 3, it's all about the church. And then in Revelation 4, 1, we have what is called the rapture of the church. And rapture is the term that's used for when God decides to to snatch the Christians that are on the earth off the earth. He gets us out of here and takes us to be with Christ so that he can judge uh, the people that are left on the earth. And so the rapture is is when uh, believers get pulled out of here and taken to be with Christ. Now, Revelation 4, uh, this verse is the last place where the word church is used in Revelation. Last time the church is mentioned. Up to this point, it's been church, 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 church. And then from this point on, word church is never used. Not church isn't mentioned. Why? Could it be? Because the church isn't here. Church isn't here during uh, the, the tribulation and what's happening in Revelation. Church is with Christ in heaven. And many believe that the judgment seat of Christ will happen uh, right after the rapture. Uh, you know, the, the judgment seat of Christ, that's the reward ceremony for believers. The Bible says that Jesus will take each believer, he will examine their life, the bad things that you have done will be consumed, they'll get burnt up. And what the good things that you have done, since you've believed in Christ, will turn into gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are the valuable things that you will take with you into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, while God is judging the world and unbelievers on earth, Jesus is judging the believers uh, up in heaven. The next thing we happen is the rise of the Antichrist, and that's in Revelation chapter 6. And the Antichrist is a leader who comes to be the dictator over the whole world. And at first he seems to be a great guy because he brings peace to the whole world. But then he tells everybody, listen, uh, you have to worship me like I'm a god. And in fact, not only do you have to worship me, but you've got to receive my mark. Uh, You have to have an identifying mark on either your hand or on your forehead. And if you don't do that, if you don't swear allegiance to me, then you can't buy, you can't sell anything, you can't eat, you can't, I mean, you're out. But the really big deal with the Antichrist is going to be that he signs a treaty with Israel that allows them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Now that's a big deal because on that Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock, one of the most holy places for the Muslim religion. So somebody with a lot of clout has got to negotiate the deal that's going to have them tear down their holy site and let the Jews build their holy site. It's going to take a one-world dictator to do that. But the Jews are chomping at the bit for that to happen. They long to rebuild their temple. And so they're already. I mean, the stones for that temple have already been cut. 
The implements to be used in that have already been made. The furniture for that temple is already made. The priests have already been trained. They, they, they got all this stuff sitting in a warehouse in Israel. I mean, you can't build a structure like that if you don't have a head start on it. So if you're going to build it in the, in the tribulation time in order for it to be there and function, you've got to have all this stuff planned ahead of time. And it's planned. They're ready. All they're waiting for is the treaty that says, yeah, you can build your temple. Bang, they're ready. They're good to go. And it's the signing of that treaty that actually starts the clock on the seven-year tribulation period. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. It's the bulk of the book of Revelation is about this seven-year tribulation. And this is where people get bogged down. Because you start reading through there and there's just all the, the, these details. There's seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals, there's plagues, there's earthquakes, there's wars, there's hailstones the size of buses that fall out of the sky. A third of the population dies, the oceans and water turn to blood. There's, there's, I mean, it's just horrible, horrible stuff that happens. And I mean, all hell breaks loose on earth because God's bringing his judgment on the earth at that point. Now, there are people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during that time. Even though the church and everybody is in, is in heaven, there'll be people who will trust in Jesus. And for them, it's going to be very, very hard and there's lots of persecution, there's lots of martyrdom. In fact, it gets so horrible for the, for the believers and for the Jewish people that if Jesus Christ doesn't come back and put an end to it, it would just destroy everybody. And so we have the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that's in Revelation 19. And that's the battle of Armageddon. You always hear about Armageddon, the last battle that's fought. Well, that's when Jesus Christ comes back and he defeats his enemies, and he wins the battle. And he establishes uh, himself uh, as the king. And then we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where Jesus takes uh, the devil, the Antichrist, all their cronies, and throws them into a bottomless pit. And they're imprisoned. And along with them, he throws depression and anxiety and deceit and sin and fear and grief and pornography and uh, confusion and greed and destruction and all of that stuff is thrown into the pit with him. And then Jesus throws a party. You know, there's a myth uh, in our day that hell is where the party is, okay? Hell's not where the party is. Hell is where the punishment is. Jesus is where the party is. So Jesus throws the marriage supper. It's his wedding. I mean, you know, he's the bridegroom, we're the bride, and we're finally together. And so it's, it's the wedding, it's the wedding feast, it's hey, Macarena. I mean, it, it's, here we go, Okay. Then we move into the millennium, and this is in Revelation 20, verse 6, and this is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Christ sets himself up as king. He rules with a rod of iron. Everybody does what they're supposed to do, and there is peace, and it's pleasant, and it's productive, and it's prosperous, and everybody's healed, and, and it's just a great time, and because Jesus is making things the way they ought to be. And, you know, this is joy to the world. Uh, joy to the world is not, is not a Christmas song. Uh, joy to the world, let earth receive her king. When Jesus came the first time, we didn't receive him as king. We killed him by nailing him to a cross. But this time when he comes, the earth's going to receive her king. And Jesus is going to rule and reign uh, for a thousand years. And we'll get to see what life on earth is like uh, with Jesus as Lord of all. 
And there'll be lots of people that'll be born. People will live for a long period of time. Lots of people will be born during that time. And then at the end of the thousand years, because all these people have been born during that time, God is going to let Satan out of the bottomless pit in order to test and tempt uh, the world again. Uh, this is so the people who were born during the millennium, uh, they're going to have their chance to either choose or reject Jesus. Because during the millennium, they haven't had a choice because he's been ruling with a rod of iron. But now, remarkably, even though they've seen Jesus ruling for a thousand years, lots of people are going to choose to reject him. That's just how lost we are. And then we come to the great white throne judgment. And this is the final judgment. And if you're a Christian, you won't be part of this because your judgment happened at the judgment seat of Christ. And so this is where everyone who's rejected Jesus will have their day in court. They'll be judged according to their works. They'll be found wanting because they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. And they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And I was thinking about this this week. It's kind of fascinating to me that, that for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, all the bad things that I've ever done, they get burnt up and consumed. And the good things that I've done through, through Christ and as a believer of Christ, those good things come out as gold, silver, and precious stones. And those are rewards that I get to take into the new heaven. So my bad stuff is burnt up, and the good stuff remains, and I get to go into heaven. For unbelievers, that's not what happens. They don't have any good stuff. Because they haven't, they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. They don't have the ability to do it. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. We, we don't have the ability to do any good thing apart from Jesus Christ. So they want to be judged according to their works. You know, unbelievers always say, yeah, judge me. You know, well, maybe the good will outweigh the bad. No, no. And in fact, it's not their works that gets burnt up. It's them. It's them that gets burnt for eternity in a lake of fire. It wasn't even designed for them. It was designed for the devil and his demons. But they chose to go there because they rejected Jesus Christ. Which situation do you want to find yourself in? Do you want your bad stuff to be burned up and gone and no longer present in your life? Do you want the good stuff to come out as gold, silver, and precious stones and enter into a new heaven with Jesus Christ and be able to live in righteousness forever? Or do you want to reject Jesus Christ and be consumed by your own sin? You get to decide. You get to choose. If you receive Jesus Christ, you get one result. If you choose yourself and reject Jesus Christ, you get the other result. But that's what happens at the great white throne judgment. And then, Revelation says, in Revelation 21 and 22, we move into the new heaven and the new earth. And I want you to notice it's a new heaven and a new earth. We got this myth about heaven that it's just kind of some ethereal place and, and we all look like fat babies with wings and we sit on clouds and play harps all day. I mean, that's just, I mean a lot of us look like fat babies. But, you know, that's not what it's going to be like. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And that new earth is going to be much like the Garden of Eden. Read the last two chapters of Revelation and read the first three chapters of Genesis. And see the description of the Garden of Eden and see the description of the new earth and you'll be amazed at how similar they are. Tree of life is there. The river of life is there. I mean, it's like God is saying, okay, children, let's do this over again and this time we get it right. Okay? 
And so it's not just floating around in heaven forever. No, we get to work. We get to enjoy stuff. I mean, we get to enjoy nature. We get to, I mean, it's just amazing what's going to happen on the new. And the incredible things that you get to do there are determined by the things that you do here. And so the real issue with this prophecy stuff is not when's it going to happen or what's going to happen. The real issue with the prophecy stuff is, is how does it change my life? Because you can have the most accurate end-time chart and if it doesn't affect your life, it's worthless. It's interesting. You read through Scripture. Whenever the disciples started asking Jesus about the end times, he would immediately change the subject and talk about how you need to live because he wanted his people to be focused on the mission. You know, he wanted us to, to, to be... You know, the details of his second coming aren't really our business. I am not on the date and place committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. I, my commission is I want to have as many people as possible ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And he, God, gets to pick the date. So that's our job. That's our great commission. So the question for us with prophecy is what should I do? And Peter just lays it out for us here. He, he says, in light of the second coming of Christ, first, I should think clearly. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I mean, you have got to have your wits about you as you move through this season. You know, Paul uh, says it this way in Philippians. He says, for I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, because this is crucial that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. That is a description of unclear thinking, and it is a description of most of the culture. And Paul says, don't be like that. He says, instead, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Jesus will take our weak mortal bodies. You know, I'm in a season of my life where I wake up every morning and I wonder, what's not going to work today? Okay? I mean, health and healing. It was one of the questions that you asked in our survey. In fact, Ryland is going to do a, a special service next week on health and healing because, I mean, it, it's, it's something we struggle with. But thank God, when Jesus returns, he's going to change this miserable mess of a body into a glorious body like his own. And I need to remember that. I need to remember that I am not just a citizen of earth. I am a citizen of heaven. And I need to wear this physical attire loosely, and I need to grab on firmly to the eternal life that I have with Jesus Christ. And I need to think clearly and I need to use self-control so that I can pray effectively in these last times. So do you. Next, I should focus on relationships. Peter says, above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. If I got people who have gotten under my skin, I need to get them out of my skin. I need to let the love of Christ 
allow me to love them and cover their multitude of sins. And I need to forgive them and I need to be hospitable. Now, why the people focus? Because people are the only thing that's going to get out of here alive. People are the only thing that's going to go into heaven. Everything, everything else is going to melt with a fervent heat down to its very elements. But people, believers in Jesus Christ, are the only thing that gets out of here and into heaven. And, and that, that's, why, that's why we're a church of small groups. Because we value relationships and we value hospitality. As a pastor of 25 years, I've come to the conclusion that the best way I can prepare somebody for heaven is to get them into a small group. Because those are the relationships that you're going to have. Those are the relationships that you're going to have in heaven. And so it's all about the people. Next, Peter says I should make a difference. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. And you might say, well, I'm not gifted. Oh, yes, you are. The Bible clearly teaches that every believer in Jesus Christ, God gives them a spiritual gift. And it's a spiritual gift that you are to discover because you don't know you got it. It doesn't come from you. It's not a talent or ability that you have. It's something that God himself has given you. And so you've got to discover it and you've got to develop it Paul says, stir up the gift that's within you, and then you've got to deploy it to help build the church. Not to build up yourself, not to accomplish your agenda, you use it to help build up the church. Peter says that we are faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You know, God has grace that he wants to pour into the life of people. And the delivery system that God has chosen for that grace is your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift. And so if you don't discover and deploy your spiritual gift, we get cheated. We get cheated of the grace that God wants you to pour into our lives. Not only do we get cheated, you get cheated. God gets cheated. I mean, this is serious. God wants you to discover, develop, and deploy your spiritual gift. You know, that, that, that's why we have 17 different dream teams that you can be a part of. And some of them happen on the weekend. You work one, you worship one. Some of them happen during the week. So you worship one and then you work on something else during the week. But you need to be involved in at least one of these in order to discover your gift and use it. And that's why God gave you the gift. And, and it's not something that comes out of yourself. You, you may not even know that you have the ability to do it. It's, it's God-given. If you, anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Why? So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So you don't do this out of your own strength. You, you just discover your gift. You start using it. It's amazing how when you start using your spiritual gift, God shows up in incredible ways that you never would have known if you weren't serving. And God shows up as you lead that small group or as you teach those kids in Rockbrook for Kids. And it's not just you. It's a God thing that's going on. But your gift is it's not to be used to benefit you. It's a gift that's used so that everybody praises God through Jesus Christ. And so our desire as a church is that every one of you gets plugged into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you get plugged into a relationship with the body of Christ and you get plugged into a dream team so you can use your gift. 
so that you can manifest God's grace to other people. And you can rack up those rewards, baby, for when you go to that new, uh, new heaven and new earth. You know, whenever Jesus or Peter or Paul talk about the last days, they always say, in light of those last days, you've got to live in such a way that you make a difference. That's the real message of prophecy. Because this life's coming to a close. And you're going to be judged. And you're going to be rewarded. And your best preparation for the last days is not to hunker in a bunker. It's to roll up your sleeves and get to work using your gifts to build the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Now, the fourth thing you need to do, preparation for the end times, is I should receive God's grace. I've got a passage I just want to walk you through here. This is from Peter. It says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Peter's saying, listen, we're all saying the same things. Jesus, Peter, Paul, James, I mean, we all got this. He says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit of brain power to figure this out which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You've got to have some discernment as you're reading and listening to this stuff. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, and I just want to let you know, you've been forewarned. (laughs) Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I just pray for us as a church and for individuals that we won't get distracted, that we won't forget you, and we won't be unprepared. And God, I would pray that you instead would help us to think clearly and God, that, that we, would, we would earnestly desire to pursue the calling that you've placed upon our life, to fulfill that commission, to use our gift. And God, we need your grace in order to do that. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him for he will freely pardon. And so God, we come to you today asking for that pardon, asking for that mercy, that forgiveness, that grace. God, forgive us of our sins. And God, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to us, the call that you've given to us that the body, the family that you've placed us in and the opportunity that we have to serve you, to bring you glory. And God, you promised to reward us for it. How tremendous is that? And so we pray that we would live wisely in these last days. 
as we earnestly await the coming of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.